now spreading freedom across the nation. This is The Buck Sexton Show. All right, team, welcome to Hour 3. Let's get into a Buck Brief. You are entering the Blaze Threat Ops Center. This is a secure space. All outside comms are down. Prepare to receive the Buck Brief. Matt McKinnis is on the line. He is a fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, where he focuses on Iran and issues in the Persian Gulf. Matt, great to have you. Thanks for joining the show. Ah, thanks for having me. Great to be here. Uh, so let's talk a bit about uh, the Iran deal going forward. What do you think Trump is going to do with this thing? What 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 do you think Trump will do? And then we can talk about what you, what should he do. Well, I, I I think the the main thing that he wants to do when he gets into office is is take a hard look uh, at what's really going on with the deal. Uh, I think, frankly, he needs a, a really a good intelligence brief on it. Uh, see what what the Iranians are, have been up to, uh, you know, since since the deal was signed. Uh, and and I think he's going to take uh, you know figure out you know how he wants to really ratchet up the pressure on the Iranians. I I, I really doubt he's going to to uh, to rip up the deal the first day. Uh, I think all, all the signs are pointing to rather how do we potentially renegotiate this deal? How do we use the uh, existing structure of the deal to put the screws to the Iranians to keep, you know, hold their feet to the fire on the deal? What are the biggest, uh, for you, what are the biggest failures that are that are in this deal, Matt? Well, it, 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 I think everyone agrees that the, the, the big problems with it uh, are we, we can't go to their military sites to do inspections, which is where if they're doing any type of nuclear weapons research, that's where it's happening. Um, and we're not allowed to go there. Uh, and so if they're doing any covert activities, uh, it's going to be almost impossible for us to know that's happening. Uh, the other part of it is, is the sunset clause, that you know this deal is only going to last for you know 10 to 15 years. Um, and once that's done, uh, it's going to be really difficult to keep them from being able to dash to a nuclear weapon uh, in about a month or two uh, if they want to do that. In fact, not just a nuclear weapon, but perhaps an entire arsenal if they wanted to. So I think finding a cap at the end of the deal, uh, getting a better cap, uh, and, and frankly, getting better access to those military sites, those are the big issues. What is Iran's game plan? What are they trying to do uh, from, a, from a military and national security perspective? What are they trying to accomplish in the first couple of years, let's say, of a Trump administration? How are they going to use force and use their proxies across the Middle East? Well, the, the Iranians are actually finally looking at, uh, you know, after a long slog in Iraq and Syria uh, with their proxies and, 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 you know, competing with, you know, Saudi Arabia, uh, battling ISIS in Iraq and other places, that they're, they're looking at some form of victory uh, where they're going to have influence, uh, you know, stretching all the way from Lebanon through Syria and Iraq, uh, you know, down into the Arabian Peninsula, you know, they're, they're seeing a chance to really have that dominant role in the Middle East that they have wanted for a very, very long time. Uh, and I think they're going to want to see if Trump uh, is going to challenge that. Uh, and I think that's what they're they're going to test uh, and, and see. And they're being backed by, you know, by the Russians now. 
uh, in their in their play, and, and I think that it's you know does does Trump want to contest that? Uh, is he going to let you know continue to let that process happen? Uh, those are you know are we going to work with our allies in Israel uh, and elsewhere in the region uh, uh, to you know to prevent that? I, I don't know. These are the big questions for the administration. But how would the administration? How should the administration go about that? Let's assume General Mattis gets confirmed as Secretary of Defense. You've got Trump, Mattis. Uh, National Security Advisor Flynn, Secretary of State, still TBD. We'll find out next week. Uh, but h- how should they be trying to counter uh, counteract Iranian, uh, you know, detrimental Iranian intentions in and around the Persian Gulf area, the broader Middle East? Well, I think you know we certainly should be uh, you know supporting our allies there in in, in the region. I mean that's that's the, certainly the first step. Uh, I, I think we, we we need to continue uh, our efforts uh, at, at countering uh, Iran's you know support for terrorism and, and, and support to proxy groups. I, I think that there's a lot of that we can be doing more uh, on sanctions, uh, counterterrorism operations against the Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, uh, and uh, and, and, and as well as trying to counter their efforts at building their ballistic missile force uh, that threatens our allies there in the region. There's a, there's a lot that uh, we can't necessarily wipe all the, that capability out. I mean, that, that may be too tough of a task, but I think there's a lot we can do to roll back and to contain Iran uh, there in the region. And I think Trump needs to put that uh, pretty high on his agenda. Uh, what about building up the Saudis even more militarily as a, a sort of counterbalance to Iranian intentions? That seems like a, something we've been doing. Um, is is that a is that a policy that you think we may come to regret one day, not too far from now, or do you think that's the only policy that we could put in place? Well, I, I certainly think you know ensuring that the the Saudis um, are are strong and stable is you know is a is a is a rational policy all the way around. Uh, I mean, certainly there there are a lot of things that the Saudis uh, do that are problematic for us uh, that, uh, you know, are, are a different set of issues that need to be discussed. But I, I, I think the Saudis are part of that. The Emiratis are part of that counterweight uh, to Iran, certainly, you know, uh, staying close, you know, with our friends and the Israelis, um, as well as other uh, allies there in the region. Um, you know, but the main thing is, I think, you know, we need to be Looking at you know what is Iran doing that is is fundamentally destabilizing the entire region, uh, and and what we need to be doing not just with our allies there, but there's a broader international community that you know should be we need to be working with to make sure that Iran what Iran is trying to do in building these proxy groups uh, and and fueling sectarian wars there in the region, which then create crisis for everybody. Um, what we can do to stem that, I think, is something that everyone should be concerned about. Iran has a strong hand right now in Iraq, in Syria, in Lebanon. Uh, Those don't seem to be places where we particularly have the leverage to use to push back against what are Iranian ground deployments in some cases. So wouldn't there have to be a pretty dramatic shift in U.S. policy towards dealing with the Iranians if we were to really try to confront that head on? We can talk about economic sanctions. We can talk about uh, you know, sort of diplomatic, uh, diplomatic responses. But if the response is going to be military, not necessarily, uh, you know, going sort of guns blazing, but if there's going to be some sort of a military counterbalance to these Iranian forces, well, I mean, where would it come from and who, who can we count on? 
Well, no, I, I said I think that there is a broader international uh, community for this, in the, you know, certainly with our, our European allies and our allies there in the region. Um, you know, I, I think, frankly, that there's roles for everything from our special forces uh, in this, you know, to be able to, uh, you know, potentially uh, counter some of the activities of the, the Revolutionary Guard Corps uh, and, and, the, and the Quds Force from Iran, um, and, that it, as well as, frankly, you know, being able to help interdict some of the, you know, the ship weapon shipments that Iran does in the region, that, that's a critical part of this. Um, you know, so I, I think that there are ways to disrupt and roll back what Iran does, um, and, you know, as well as, frankly, you know, being able to demonstrate that, that the U.S., you know, is going to continue uh, being an effective deterrent uh, for what Iran, Iran's uh, efforts to expand its military as well as, you know, ideological and, and political power in the region. Uh, I think these are all things that can be done without necessarily going into a full-bore uh, military conflict with, with Tehran. Matt McInnes is a fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. You can read his latest at AEI.org. And uh, Matt, we really appreciate you joining us today. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Uh, team, phone lines are open, 888-900-3393. We'll be back in a few minutes. Buck Sexton on the Blaze Radio Network. Team, I want to do a, share something with you here, um, uh, and it comes from we we're talking a lot about the various uh, Trump appointees, and of course, there's a lot of politics that surrounds all this, and you know, people are going to say things about some of these individuals that are really nasty, and some people are going to defend things that maybe shouldn't necessarily be defended. It's politics, right? We we all understand that. We get that. Um, but I, I do think that you're noticing sort of a, a consensus forming among most people who are trying to be fair-minded that, you know, overall, it's it's a pretty good, pretty strong group that's being pulled together uh, to be at the sort of top echelon of the uh, Trump administration, that it's actually uh, a lot of people who have either really relevant uh, experience and backgrounds or, well, and in addition to that, in some cases, have pretty remarkable service uh, to their country. And there are a number of generals, as you know, and this has gotten some on the left uh, a bit riled up because they seem to think that the no that there can be just too many generals in government, I guess, in peri- period, even if there are generals who have left. Um, but I wanted to share something with you. I saw this um, last night as I was preparing for today's show, uh, and it is from General Kelly, who is going to be, uh, once he's confirmed, the Department of Homeland Security's uh, secretary. And look, the one thing I will say in this country is there's a sense of, for the most part, a bipartisan uh, reverence for military service. I think it's much, uh, it's more uniform, it's more widespread or more sort of, absolute on the right than it is on the left. The left tends to have more people who either look down on military service or whatever. But overall, 
the Democrats and Republicans, left and right in this country, have an understanding of what it means to serve and and respect it and uh, and have a, a reverence for that service. And General Kelly is one of those very senior military officers, and there are a few. I, I believe General Odierno, who was a four-star in Iraq, uh, really sort of was Petraeus's number two for a while, I remember. Uh, and I believe Odierno had a son who was wounded, although I should check on that. I don't want to say something that, I'm, that I have to correct. I believe he had, but I know he had a son who served. I think he had a son who was very seriously wounded uh, in Iraq. Um, and you have some of these, the senior military brass, uh, they have sons and daughters who serve in the military as well. And of course, that can mean that some of them, uh, including a, a very, very senior member of the Pentagon, can suffer the kind of loss that so many Americans have over the course of these wars uh, by losing a, a son or a daughter in combat. And this was, uh, these are the words of General Kelly on losing on losing his son uh, in Afghanistan, and I wanted to just read them to you verbatim. I think this gives you a sense of who this man is, and it'll resonate, I'm sure, with, with many of you, uh, many of you who have served, and also many of you who have loved ones uh, who have served, and perhaps even some of you listening who have had loved ones who have served and, and who were lost in action, who have been killed in action, uh, or, or wounded. So here's what General Kelly said about the loss of his son. Since the day I had my turn standing in the door, looking into the glistening eyes of a casualty officer, and the day I woke my wonderful wife and crushed her heart with the news, and had to nearly pick my daughter up off the floor where she worked, I have desperately tried to convince myself that it was worth it. I have worked hard at believing his life was worth the sacrifice on the altar of America's freedom. But it all came to me the day we buried him in the sacred ground that is Arlington at section 60, gravesite number 9480. It doesn't matter at all what I think. The only thing that matters is what he thought, that he had decided it was more important to be where he was that morning in the Sangin River Valley, Afghanistan, to be doing what he was doing with the Marines and Doc he loved so much and led so well in what was at that time the most dangerous place on earth. That's the kind of individual that you want to be uh, in a position of true leadership, somebody who uh, understands the gravity of the sacrifices that are made with each passing day by our military because he had to deal with that sacrifice himself. Uh, we have had U.S., uh, we've taken U.S. casualties recently in Afghanistan. We continue to take casualties there. Uh, we have had uh, some, although fortunately very few, um, incidents of casualties in Iraq. Uh, but this continues to happen. And, and I think that in the political back and forth over all this, especially as somebody who spends a, a lot of his time thinking about national security issues and trying to analyze uh, the best ways to go about uh, defeating enemies that we must defeat, uh, like the Islamic State, it's important to keep in mind what that cost is. Um, I didn't, uh, it's not something that I just sort of volunteered to do. I, I remember uh, 
as I've mentioned to you in the past, uh, spending time at Walter Reed uh, with a friend who was uh, very seriously wounded. He was ended up being, I mean, okay would be too strong a word, but he ended up with most most of uh, most of his function back, and and he certainly survived. And he was, in the end, he was all right. Uh, but spending time there, I remember visiting him the first time, and he said uh, all he he wanted me to bring him five guys. So I went on a mission to five guys right away um, with a friend of mine, and we, we brought him five guys, and we spent uh, spent the afternoon there with him and visited with him. And you saw the people, uh, the servicemen and women um, in that building, and the wounds that individuals were dealing with, it is sobering. It is something that I honestly think it would be, we'd be better off as a country if everybody at some point in time would just, go to a uh, go to uh, the equivalent of a Walter Reed if not Walter Reed and see what it's like for some of those who have served and the uh, challenges that they face it also certainly per- uh, puts into perspective I, you know, I think it's it's easy especially right now you see so much uh, hyperventilating in the media about this doomed uh, future and how how will people cope and because they're favorite political candidate didn't win it's like the world is just collapsing in around them some people have had in this country some of the best and uh some of our our bravest and most dedicated and most honorable citizens many of them have had real reason to think the world was closing in around them because they either themselves were struggling uh, mightily against horrific wounds uh, whether internal or external uh, whether psychological or physical or both um, or had to be the uh, support for a loved one who went through that. You know, this is where you start to see, you know, the, the, the childishness with which people on the left decry the sort of the fall of the republic. It's really all a game to them. But defending this country and taking it, uh, taking the defense of freedom seriously, not just thinking that it's uh, a slogan to be thrown around, you know, at political rallies or... Um, in some cases, I think for the left to be used almost ironically, uh, for for many people, it's it is a life's work, and it's not just a life's work; it's something they're willing to lay their life down to defend. Um, and this this really uh, this it's short. This section from General Kelly uh, it really stuck with me. I mean, he just sang it exactly like it is, um, and you know I was particularly analyzed I, I was up last night and i was preparing for the show and i felt like i would be doing all of us uh, a service of sorts just by sharing it um, and letting it be known you know these are the kinds of people that serve in the united states military and, and i think it's very encouraging that someone like uh, general kelly is going to be in a position to try and help the defense of this country as Homeland Security Secretary after having served honorably in the military for his his whole career. So you know, he he said it. Uh, it's this, the horrific pain that his family had to go through. And, and it, at the end, it's not whether he understands why his son gave his life for his country. It's that that's what his son wanted to do. It's uh, powerful stuff. And we're going to go to a break. And we'll be back and we'll talk about something that's not going to choke me up. I'll be right back. The Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network. 
Sexton. Let's talk about the Trump administration and nukes. We're joined by Michaela Dodge. She is a senior policy analyst for defense and strategic policy at the uh, Heritage Foundation. Michaela, thanks for joining. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, So Trump administration, nukes, they should look at it and they should do what? Well, I think the first step is to reassess U.S. nuclear posture, which currently assumes that Russia is no longer an adversary and potential for conflict is low. I think it will be important to continue to maintain the triad, modernize nuclear systems, and then take opportunities to put U.S. nuclear weapons policy on a more sound ground. What would that mean? I mean, on a sound ground, how? What are are we doing wrong now? What has the Obama administration been doing that's moving in the wrong direction? Uh, For example, for the past several years, we've been unilaterally decreasing the number of our nuclear weapons while Russia is increasing and everybody else is modernizing and increasing. Um, We have been, we made policy decision to not to test our nuclear weapons. And, you know, that's not your big explosions in the Pacific or underground in Nevada test sites. It's any, any experiments involving yield Um, And these experiments can be very important in trying to understand how our weapons age, how our warheads age, and how to maintain them better. Um, So that would be another example how you can make our nuclear policy better. And people who say things like, well, whether we have 100 or 1,000 nuclear weapons, what difference does it really make? I mean, how how do you try to educate people about that, Michaela? Um, I think, you know, the... The best, the the thing is numbers matter, and we may not think that they matter, but our adversaries think that they matter. And so what we have to do is try to understand how our adversaries think about what they value. Um, So at the core of deterrence in preventing um, big, large-scale, great power conflict is trying to make sure you understand what it is that you can destroy, that you can inflict damage so devastating that your adversary will not make that first move. Um, and I think it, it's a, it's an intellectually very challenging problem, but it's just critical that we put in the effort. What are the uh, what are the most essential non-proliferation challenges and 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 uh, facing the Trump administration, and uh, how do you think they should go about tackling them? Uh, I think um, I think the first one that they will have to tackle is the Iran deal. Um, The deal was flawed. It was very poorly negotiated. Uh, It's not stopping Iran from obtaining a nuclear weapon. um, And Iran is violating this deal. Um, And I think it's going to be important. We we never hear about that, by the way. We never hear about Iran. Like, how has Iran violated the deal already? So, for example, it exceeded um, the permissible number of the nuclear materials that it was permitted under the deal. Um, now it is saying that if Congress reenacts sanctions on it, you know, the threat of sanctions, it's going to be a violation of the deal on the U.S. side. So again, you know, this is not the Iranian violation, but it's a very significant disagreement in how the Obama administration presented the deal to the general public. Um, and what, what about North Korea? Uh, are there any other countries, by the way, that you think are are poised to sort of get on the on the road uh, to n- n- nuclear nuclear weapons or nuclear power status that 
don't necessarily get as much attention. There was a time when people were saying, well, if the Iranians go nuclear or get close to it, the Saudis are going to want to do so. And maybe they can just sort of borrow a bomb from Pakistan. I mean, there's all these things that we used to hear about. I haven't heard much of it lately. What are, what are some of the other than Iran? What are some of the threats and challenges for uh, nonproliferation efforts? You know, I think the Middle East is a it, it, it's a just significant one. And with Iran having access to new technologies and more cash and um, kind of being more opened up to the global economy, I think that's going to cause a whole different set of proliferation concerns as they cooperate with other states in the region and around the world um, on potentially spreading these technologies. You have North Korea that remains your perennial problematic state and that will not go away either. Absolutely. Michaela Dodge is a senior policy analyst at the uh, Heritage Foundation. She's an expert on nuclear weapons and nuclear nonproliferation. Uh, you can read more about her and her work at heritage.org. Michaela, thank you very much for calling in. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, team, we will be right back. You're listening to The Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network. We got a call up on the board from Rocky the Beekeeper in Nebraska. Rocky, are you actually a beekeeper? I am, Buck. I uh, I just love raising bees, although this, they've all prey to uh, crop dusters this season. So I'm I'm beeless. How do you? So so you okay? But but usually you actually are a beekeeper. So you make you or rather you gather the bees for the making of honey. Yes. Yeah. It's a real fascinating thing to do. Uh, really rewarding. Bees are bees are just totally awesome. <laughs> Tell me why bees are. This is fascinating. I know you want to talk about something else that we're, but I'm just curious because I've never had a beekeeper on here before. And I've talked about the. I feel bad now because I refer to the burke the the burka as beekeeper chic, but I'm sure what you wear is way more chic than a burka. Uh, but why? Oh, tell me, tell me, what would I not know about? I mean, all I know about bees is they make honey and they can sting me. What else can I know? Well. I'll tell you one that makes people go gee whiz sometimes. Um, I actually like to get stung in my hands uh, when I handle the bees. Is this the kind of thing you want to share on air? It's kind of some weird stuff. You like getting stung? No. no, uh, The the bees carry something in their sting that relieves my arthritis. Oh, wow. I have arthritis in my hands, and after the bees sting me, I get about 48 hours of relief from it. So Really? Yeah. I don't mind a little bit of pain, and then I feel like I've got little kid dance for a couple of days. But I mean, <laughs> do, do, do they get to know you, or like, will they sting you no matter what? Or how, how do you? I'm just curious. Like, will you do you do the whole? Um, you must do the whole head to head to toe thing, or is there a way yeah. that you can make them mellow so they won't sting you? Yeah, you you uh, smoke them. You take and you put a, a smoker. It's like a little billows that's in a can, and you put in like some uh, wood chips, some wet wood chips. And then you burn it, and then you smoke the bees. And what it does is bees basically work on a, a 
colony mentality where the colony does different things because of the pheromones that are secreted by other bees. And it's it gets to be kind of complicated in some ways because you've got different bees that are specialized in different jobs, and those pheromones control which of the jobs are increased and decreased um, as to, like, the number of drones or uh, if there's an extra queen being born because there's really only one queen in a hive mainly, and they'll kill the rest. And all of that works off the smell. But when you spray that smoke in there, uh, the pheromones are not able to be smelled by the bees, and they become rather docile, actually. And uh, when you first start beekeeping, you go in that full beekeeper, like you said, the burka-type thing. But um, after you deal with them a while and you get more comfortable, I usually just wear a mask because I'm afraid for them getting in my mouth and my eyes and things of that nature. But uh, the body, you know, it's not that big a deal. And, gotcha. and those, those, uh, my bee soup is simply nothing more than a painter's outfit. It's made out of Tyvek, so it breathes a little bit, but they're extremely hot. So in the summertime, I usually opt not to wear the full beekeeper, just, just the face veil. Yeah, well, just don't don't let the Saudi Mutawas see you. They show too much ankle, you're in trouble. <laughs> so, Randy, what do you want to ask me about? Before I, I just saw that on the screen that you're a beekeeper, and I was curious. But what was your question? Yeah, my question. It's really short, actually. Um, I keep hearing him toss around this number that uh, Secretary of Defense has to be out of the military for seven years. I'm just curious, and I don't expect you to know this off the top of your head, but maybe you could put out some feelers. I'm curious where that comes from. It sounds to me something like Congress would do just to try and uh, get a leg up on a on a general. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I think I think Congress. I want to say that was passed. Um, I should check, but because uh, I was going to throw out a number, I think I'm wrong. Nineteen forty-seven. That sounds right to me. But anyway, yeah, yeah that, it was nineteen forty-seven. Okay. Yeah, even when yeah, I think I I'm wrong, I'm right. Number. I like it. I looked it up. Yeah, good. I never have so, seen an explanation though for it. I, I think it's I, I one of those sort of arbitrary rules that government comes up with that I, I, I don't really know why. I mean, I look, it, it's because they want civilian control of the military. But, you know, after seven years, you know, why not two years? You know, seven years seems like a pretty long time. Uh, I'm not really clear on. And by the way, that doesn't apply to, uh, you know, anything else uh, that I know of in, in government. Right. I mean, there's not I, I this sort of I, I don't know. Actually, I shouldn't say that. I don't know if, if you were an intel officer. You know, if on the civilian side, oh, I guess that doesn't get caught up in this military rule. Um, yeah, I, I'll be totally frank with you, uh, Rocky. I did not even know that this was a rule until it came up with Mattis. I was unaware that there was a seven-year... I, I didn't either, and it just, it kind of smells, it smells funny to me. It doesn't smell right, because it can't be due to security. I mean, for goodness sakes, it, you know, if you're a general and you've been, you know, able to get, get you know, uh, T.S., you know, whatever type clearance all the way on up, uh, if you've got that, you know, it's not like there's any sort of problem there. I don't see any problem with, you know, uh, financial gain. I, I, I would trust a general way more than I trust our congressman to be taking those uh, positions. So it's yeah, just I, a question. No, it's a, it's a good question. I'll, I'll look into it. I, I don't really know what the, uh, what the rationale behind it is. It seems... It seems a bit arbitrary to me, but uh, Rocky, I will look into it, and maybe I'll have an answer for you tomorrow on Freestyle Friday. How about that? I, I think that's and how do great. I, how I do I get hooked up I'll with some, bring you some 
Exactly. You know what I was going to ask for. That's right. How do I get hooked up yeah. with some artisan honey? <laughs> I'll bring you some. Yeah. I can, <laughs> I can also give you a uh, hog factoid since I was a hog farmer when I was a kid. Oh farm. wow! I mean, I eat bacon every. I eat bacon and eggs pretty much every morning. So uh, that's and I'm. I have to say, <laughs> since I started doing that, I'm in better shape and and healthier eating bacon and eggs every morning uh, than in the old days when I would eat like uh, you know croissant or uh, you know bagels or any of that kind of stuff. So I'm I'm a big believer. All in, these diet, all the dietary warnings are all bogus. Oh, yeah, no, bacon is great for bad. you. Pork's it's just you know bad, everything in moder- everything in moderation. Yeah, it's crazy. All right, Rocky, keep making that keep making right. that sweet honey, my man. Thank you for calling in. Good to talk to you. Um, yeah, I was going. I'm hoping to have on to the show at some point soon uh, a a guest who just wrote a book on sort of the history of food. Actually, uh, Sarah Lohman. She's a. We're. Gonna, I just thought of this now. I asked Amy to get her on soon because I saw this piece. Uh, it's called "Kebabs of the Next Hamburgers: How War and Immigration Predict What We Eat." I'm not, I don't really like that headline. It's not really. It's not that it predicts what we eat, but there, look, there's a there's a correlation, obviously, between move, uh, population movements and cuisine. Uh, this has been something that ha- it's been around for a long time. I mean, I, I think I've talked to you before about the history of coffee and how coffee and, and originally comes from is Yemeni tra- uh, traders would move along the eastern coast of Africa because you can't, obviously can't grow coffee in the desert in Yemen, um, but mocha was a port. On what is now, or on the coast of what is now Yemen, and you know, who knew that, huh? When you order a mocha, it's named after a city in Yemen, just like Shiraz or Syrah, which is the French version of Syrah, is named after a city in oh, that's right, Iran, because Iran used to be a major wine producer uh, with excellent grapes, and then of course it went all you know, hardline Islamikazi with the mullahs, and they don't really make a lot of good wine anymore. Uh, you get what I'm saying. The, but the coffee made its way, and people think of like talkie, coffee as being sort of a Turkish product. Well, that's because the Ottoman Empire controlled the Arabian Peninsula, and, and this is how you have the introduction of, of coffee into things. Whereas chocolate actually came from the New World, which I always find fascinating. Chocolate really came from South America. As you know, the Aztecs would drink a version of chocolate, but it was bitter. It was really just had chilies. They didn't use sugar. I think it was the European monks who actually added sugar to the uh, bricks of sort of baked cacao, that chocolate. Um, and, and that's how we get the chocolate we have today. Uh, but it is fascinating to sort of look at uh, where certain cuisine, how certain cuisines have coincided uh, with population movements into, into this country. One thing that they talked about in this piece that I didn't know was that th- usually people would think of uh, soy sauce as a Chinese, well, I mean, they're both Chinese and Japanese, but soy sauce, just because of all the, Chinese immigration in this country. You think that soy sauce was uh, introduced in the United States by the Chinese. I'm sure you already know this, by the way, but uh, fortune cookies started in San Francisco, um, not in China. There are no there are no fortune cookies really in China. At least that's some of this stuff. Also, gets a lot of urban legends around all this. So you hear things that are not true. The great one about the the croissant being in the in the crescent shape is actually as People, there are stories that it's to commemorate the Battle of Lepanto, believe it or not, and the victory of, or was it the Battle of Siege of Vienna? It might have been the Siege of Vienna, actually, pardon me. Or was Lepanto, I can't remember now. I think it's Siege of Vienna. And so you'd eat the crescent moon, and that's where the croissant, anyway. I think that, that sounds a little urban legendy to me, but you hear these things. Uh, so anyway, I didn't have the time, because we went a little along with Rocky there. I was interested in learning about beekeeping to get into the history of food uh, and how it 
ties into this country. Maybe that'll be a guest we could do tomorrow. That'll be fun. Or next week. We'll talk a bit about the history of food and how it ties into immigration. Yay. Because I like to mix up the topics, everybody. Uh, please download today's show. It's uh, the best thing you can do for me. The biggest favor you can do to Freedom Hut is to share the podcast, the show, with a friend. Um, explain to them what Shields High means. Show off a little knowledge of you know ancient Greece in the process. Uh, Freestyle Fridays tomorrow at 12 Eastern. Until then, my friends, Shields High. The Buck Sexton Show. Only on the Blaze Radio Network.